From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Kate Massey hosting this week with the whole crew. Shane Jensen is here from way out of town, joining us late in the evening. Appreciate that. Eric Bradlow from his office in Huntsman Hall at the Wharton School. And Audie Weiner, visiting family in the Northeast where it's already dark over there. But we're all in here together on Zoom as we usually are these days, Tuesday afternoon, as we usually record these days. Show will go up Wednesday morning, tomorrow morning on SiriusXM. Be replayed a few times on business radio we'll also get the podcast up tomorrow you guys want to question us suggest something for us please feel free hit us up at w moneyball on twitter is probably the easiest way to catch us at w moneyball on twitter and uh we follow all our guests up there we'd love to hear from you guys guys we've got an interview in the second half we're going to talk college football college football recruiting and uh, we've got open lines here in the first half. Maybe let's briefly touch on college football. This is really coming down to the end. Uh, I think, uh, we, well, we got one of the biggest games of the year, Michigan-Ohio State-Ohio State at Michigan. The Bradlow family will be in attendance, which is mighty exciting, one of the greatest rivalries in sport. The Wolverines are three-and-a-half-point favorites there. They are the winners. It's pretty much a, it is a national quarterfinal. The winner of that is going to win, is going to beat Iowa in the Big Ten Championship and have a place in the playoffs. The loser is a long shot to make it in. There's scenarios in which they might, but it's a long shot if they lose this. So it's a big game. Great fun. Um, I think Ohio State, to, by the way, has a better shot as a loser to make it in than Michigan uh, does. I think with all the Harbaugh stuff going on and the, you know, Either way, and and Ohio State now is higher ranked, and just you know the prior beliefs. But either way, I agree with you. It's it's a it's a I love the framing. It is a quarterfinal game. Well, they've also got a better win. They both beat Penn State, but Michigan kind of doesn't have anything else. Ohio State beat Notre Dame, and that at least at the time seemed like a real good win. So they've got that advantage as well. I agree with you. They have a better chance if they're the loser. Um, a simple way to think about the college football landscape right now is that we have eight teams left. I'd say Louisville is a ninth, but they're there. I mean, they would need a real meltdown to make it in eight teams left of those eight. There are three guaranteed losses among them. So like this weekend, Ohio state, Michigan are play, playing each other, Oregon and um, Washington are going to play each other and Georgia and Alabama. So there will be three losses among those eight, but if that's all that happens, We've got five teams still standing for four spots, and that's uh, why uh, no, well, well, you don't count. What let's say Alabama beats Georgia. Georgia's still standing. I know. Even then, it's not completely done. No, and you I know believe. my doomsday. That's what I'm hoping for, right? <laughs> not that I have any love for Nick Saban, but at all. But I am hoping that Alabama beats Georgia, and to see if they're going to put in two SEC teams. Well, it, it'll that they'd be tempted because they're a two-time defending champ, and they've looked pretty much tops all year. Well, not all year, but they're looking tops here at the end. We we're going to talk in the second half of the show about the strength of their roster, so that, that would be interesting. And it's not a long shot. Well, the, I think the the line people are anticipating the line being three or four points. There, it's a doable thing. Alabama, you know, probably has an axe to grind after a couple of years not getting it done. So that all um, could come to pass, Eric. There's going to be plenty of room for drama between now and then. In fact, there's only a narrow window for no drama. There's only a, you need just the right thing to happen. Those three losses happen. Maybe either Texas or Florida State lose, and you've got things easy. Or Florida State doesn't lose. Washington doesn't lose. Georgia doesn't lose. You've got four undefeateds. And that's going to be real simple if it's four undefeateds. But let's let that sit. We've got other things to talk about. We've got more coming up down the road. Two other quick notes, maybe three other quick notes. Well, one nice news here I think I want to share. In the world of consolidation and NIL and transfer and people gnashing their teeth at all these things, a nice thing happened this week. Washington, as everyone knows, is going to the Big Ten with UCLA, Oregon, USC. Beginning next year, that means the Apple Cup is coming to an end unless they do something about it. The Apple Cup is the Washington Washington, Washington State rivalry playing this weekend. They just announced that they're going five more years of the Apple Cup. Why end? You don't have to end just because you're moving to another conference. You can have a non-conference rivalry. 
They respect the rivalry. They're going to go at least another five years. I think it's a fantastic idea. I wish more teams did this kind of thing. Maybe we'll see more of it. Maybe maybe it kind of goes hand in hand with some consolidation. Anyway, I thought it was worth some attention. Adi's got some Ivy League news for us. I do have some Ivy League news, not because any of you really care too much about the Ivy League. Um, although Yale beat Harvard, just throw that out, Harvard guys. Um, and the Yale did, we all want to share the championship. Um, what's interesting is that about four or five years ago, I did this recruiting model, um, which we're actually going to talk about in our second half. And what I noticed about the Ivy League is that they made this monumental shift in their recruiting, where all of a sudden they're recruiting in small numbers and not in particularly powerful numbers, but potential NFL players, which they never used to do. And one team in particular was standing out as being the best and one at the worst. And the best one was Yale, which was averaging uh, recruiting classes way better than all the others with Harvard and Princeton a little bit behind and Dartmouth by far like the last place. And I just want to point out that this model that I that kind of came up with about four or five years ago has seen Yale win a share or all the title basically five times in the last six years. So it matters. And but interestingly enough, Dartmouth consistently is is up there playing with the big the big teams and win I want to share this year. And there's a mystery how Dartmouth does this because their recruit class looks terrible relative to Yale's. Well, I I just give me some numbers here. How many how many players from these teams go to the NFL? Are we talking about like, oh, five versus three? Or are we talking about one versus zero? Oh, well, okay. The, the, the historical number, the expected number historically was, was essentially zero. Whether one made it or not, that was just random variation. The expected number was basically zero. The Yale number is probably expected. You know, this is just a draft. So you're never going to see these guys actually play too much. The Yale number is probably up to about three now, an expected number. I don't know what actually is happening, but they're expected yeah. and, and, uh, and and Dartmouth still is around a half, right, or less. Um, so uh, Dartmouth, Brown, and Columbia kind of sit – well, it's really Dartmouth, Brown, and Cornell sit at the bottom. Columbia and Penn in the middle, and the top three is Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Uh, but, no, these are not like Alabama, Georgia. <laughs> no, 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 not even – and it's like three-star recruits is tops. <laughs> well, the quarterback who just won last night played for both Alabama and Oklahoma – manages to what we have the longest streak of winning against teams with winning records in the NFL history, excluding postseason. Regular season record. Exactly. Well of course uh, Penn, Penn has a two time Super Bowl winning player who caught a big pass last night, Justin Watson. That's right. He was a draft fifth maybe a fifth round draft pick. Is that right? Maybe four Harvard five, has very good the, fifth round. Fifth round. Harvard has one of the most exciting football players of the last twenty years, Ryan Fitzpatrick. That's right. Magic. There you go. Fitz magic. Um, guys, Yale, uh, Audie, Yale has. I'm going to suggest that we set <laughs> Ivy. I'm, I'm going to suggest that we set Ivy league football aside and talk about the NFL. Any observations? We are past the halfway point. Now Eagles with a big win against the chiefs. Arguably the chiefs should have gotten it done last night. What about Andy Reed? He, the God of NFL coaching punting from the other teams, 40, in the fourth quarter. Any, anyway, about the game or other places, what are your observations on the NFL right now? Can I just point about that decision? I mean, I, I've been running these fourth down models and they have giant spikes of green, meaning go for it in the middle of the field. And I was shocked that they punted at that point, really shocked, because it just seems like a, an obvious no-brainer. You go for it there. It, it just doesn't cost you anything. And sh- sure enough, they punted and ended up maybe, what, 10 yards further or 15 yards further than they were. Makes just no probabilistic sense. Yeah, I think the part that always surprises me, Adi, is near the end of games when a team is up by like four or five points and they choose to punt from like the 40 when, you know, the other team's willing to give you that first 20 yards anyway. So Mm -hmm. those extra yards are almost worthless. Like getting a first down is worth so much. I mean, in many cases, it ends the game. But even like, oh, they're starting at the 15 instead of the 30. So what? You know, it that that those yards just aren't that valuable at that again, given you're up more than three at that part of the game. Yeah, no, and I think that's a great point that people don't really think about is uh, behind fourth down decisions in general is you know, you're by punching, you're trying to play a field position game, but like if you're already like on their the opponent's side of the ball, to actually punt it and make it make it a value added to kind of you know, print them deep is actually a pretty hard play to pull off in this in today's NFL. So yeah, I think it's kind of obvious that they should have gone for it on fourth down there, but you know, 
I want to give you an observation that comes from either Eric or Shane. Top three quarterbacks in yards per attempt in the NFL right yeah. now so far, Purdy, Tua, and Stroud. And then observing that all coached by head coaches from the Shanahan tree, Shanahan himself, of course. Yeah. Purdy, McDaniel, and, it's worth pointing out and that, Tua. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, there's going to be top three quarterbacks every year, but th- these numbers, this, these yards per attempt numbers are kind of are, are pretty – they stand out. I mean, I really do think we're seeing – in the NFL, like this kind of like this innovative offensive scheming, at least certainly on the part of Mike Shanahan and on the part of Mike McDaniel. Really yeah, how much credit does D'Amico? I, I don't even know what's going on with the with the Texans. D'Amico Ryan's is a defensive player, right? I'm assuming he's right. Yeah, and he was a defense. I, I mean, he's not. You know, he he is from the Shanahan coaching tree. He was the defensive he, he coached for San Francisco for several years before going to Houston. But the, he was the defensive coach, so it's not. Yeah, you, you think you know, he got? You think he, he's he got really, by osmosis? I, Did he get by osmosis some of that or, offensive or, or, or coincidence, or, way, or the, just you know? The great uh, C.J. Stroud question is: You guys remember last year in the last game of the season how we were all lambasting the Texans to yeah, win the game that right. won and knock them from the one seed to the two. The counterfactual question everyone asks, I get, we get it on our Twitter feed at W Moneyball as well is if the Texans had lost the game and been number one, would they have taken Bryce young? Yeah, and there's right. no way they wouldn't trade for them to trade CJ Stroud. They would need Bryce young and three other first round picks right now. Yeah. Uh, Cause CJ Stroud, again, as we talked about last week too, I don't know how great he's going to be, but it's hard to imagine a scenario where he's a bust. It's not hard to imagine a scenario right now where Bryce Young could be a Mariota, Jameis Winston. He could end up being just a good backup quarterback in the NFL. C.J. Stroud's a star. I mean, a lot of people want to yeah. argue he's an MVP candidate right now. No, I mean, and I've I, I a hard time remembering like a rookie quarterback campaign like this. He's a tw- top three quarterback in the NFL right now. As a rookie, is it is it possible that that poor performance in a rookie quarterback is less diagnostic than great performance? Is that possible? Because I don't want to to measure performance by just purely wins losses. Um, Because there's things that are concerning about Bryce Young. I mean, uh, uh, Shane was the one that put the stats about C.J. Stroud in the rundown. Um, Bryce Young's the opposite. He's got the lowest number of yards per pass attempt in the NFL right now. And so there are many concerning stats. And of course, with motion tracking data. These are quarterback stats technically, but they're team stats realistically. Right. And, and it's, I think it's, I think it's harder for a new quarterback to elevate poor surrounding than to be elevated by that surrounding. But I feel like it's a little asymmetric. I feel like, I don't want to discount. I mean, one, we, no one expected the Texans to be any good. So the fact that Stroud is, is playing that well cannot be so readily attributed to his surrounding cast. But no one expected the Panthers to be good either. And I'm not ready to dismiss Young. By the way, I have a question no, about yeah, Young. I have a question about Young that I, I haven't watched him play enough this year to know. One of the knocks on him coming in is that he was that he is slight. He's an average sized guy, like literally, like almost an average sized man playing NFL quarterback. We've seen quarterbacks get knocked out every week this year. Like an unbelievable number of new guys are starting. He hasn't been knocked out yet. Is there something about his – is he good at not taking bad hits? Is he good at – or is he more robust than we thought he was? Or is, is there something about his play? I'm Now I'm asking, is there a positive feature here that he is less injury-prone, especially than you might have thought given his stature? Yeah, open, keep throwing, keep keep being last in the league in yards per attempt. Throw throw a bunch of three yard passes, and I won't get hit either. Okay, okay, okay. Fine. No, I'm just saying. No, the winning that formula be, is called the check down. I think. Yeah, okay. the guys, the that's, okay. that's the winning formula. Throw throw ninety eight percent of your passes check downs is like perhaps a little bit easier to stay healthy. But um, all right, okay. But guys, I, I love you actually. I actually like the asymmetry you brought brought up because I think it makes C J Stroud kind of even more exceptional. Because I think you know Brett. A, 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 a top draft pick struggling in their rookie season is not at all unusual. And I don't think it's necessarily, you know, a damning of them because most rookie quarterbacks, most right. top draft picks go to terrible situations kind of by right. definition of being top draft picks. So what CJ Stroud is doing is this almost more exceptional because as you sort of said, he's kind of succeeding in a situation where we wouldn't necessarily, you know, expect somebody to succeed. Yep. At least right away. Guys, I, I want to jump to Hall of Fame, but I want to give you one quick observation on the way. Ludwig 
Oberg won his first PGA event this past weekend. Now you might think, what the heck am I telling you this for? Because people think he might be the next big thing. People have been saying that since this summer when the European Ryder Cup took him, he had never appeared in a major and they drafted him onto the team. And then he played well in the Ryder Cup. This is a guy who played his college golf at Texas Tech up over here in Lubbock, West Texas. He's from Sweden. He won the golf version of the Heisman, the Ben Hogan, two years in a row. Came out, won on the DP World Tour, won the Ryder, and now has won his first PGA Tour at 24. Oberg, Ludwig Oberg. By the way, who's the only other golfer to win the Ben Hogan two years? So I have two guesses, but I'll go with my first guess. It's, it's Knowing you, it's some Texas guy. So I'm going to go with Jordan <laughs> Spieth or it's Scotty Scheffler. Um, that's good guess, Eric. That's I'm very guilty of that. But in this case, no. And in fact, you raise an interesting point. To win it two years, you have to play more than you have to play at least two years. And a lot of the best golfers, how many years did Tiger play at Stanford? I think just one. Speed only played one at Texas. Ah, so okay. he couldn't have won it two years. John Rom, Arizona State. John oh, Rom. Wow. Won the one. Yeah, it's a good name. Ben Hogan, two years in a row. All right. Keep your eye on Ludwig Oberg. Okay, fellas, Major League Baseball, Hall of Fame, what's going on? We got a lot of ballot. Our ballot is open, and so what are you going to talk about? I mean, we got Chase Utley on the ballot. Adrian Beltre is is the lock of the group. Yeah, I think he's the only first ballot kind of – he should should get in on first ballot. Um, Yeah, I mean, the real question is whether Andrew Jones is going to make a run. He seems to be getting momentum each year. We have Joe Maurer. You want to talk about him? Uh, Well, I I kind of do want to – I want to talk about catchers. I want to talk about catchers in the Hall of Fame because I kind of – I have a vague recollection of – Around the time Yadier Molina retired, mm-hmm. you guys, uh, you know, the vibe I got from you guys is like, oh, that guy's a lock from the Hall of Fame. Do you do you actually mean that? Did you mean that at the time? Am I misremembering? Do you guys think Yadier Molina should be in the Hall of Fame? No, I didn't. I don't make that. Okay, no. maybe I, I guess maybe that just made up in my head because I certainly maybe I'm inferring just from media because the media certainly has talked about, and I mean he's been around so long and everything like that. But Joe Mauer, I think stands out so far above any kind of catcher we've seen for a while. And Buster Posey may be the only one at all competitive. Now, I I think Maurer, Maurer should maybe be a first ballot. Yeah, I don't know. Maurer, I mean, how, how many years did he stay at catcher? So, you know, the last few years he was at first base. Um, it's a tricky business because catcher is like such a sacrificial lamb as a position. I mean, you, you get beat up and it's hard to maintain serious – offensive production what's what's interesting is you know i'm looking at the link that uh shane shared with us on war he's up there there's no question about yeah. it he's in hall of fame i mean he's in right in between yogi berra and bill dickey that puts you in the hall of fame let's be yeah. clear about that on traditional metrics which a lot of people also vote on he's got 143 home runs 923 rbis so that's sounding a little bit low by uh, catcher but- standards yeah. Even for, oh, I'm just comparing. Even for catchers, catchers in the Hall of yeah. Fame, catchers yeah. even like yeah. Yeah. you look at the, all the other ones around him, Shane. They all have you know these are three. Yeah, no, and, and, I, and I think Posey's going to be the same situation because both of them basically had incredible careers, peak peak performance, no doubt, Hall of Famers. But you know that maybe their lack of longevity compared to somebody like a Yadier Molina or like you know you know Yogi Berra of, of yesteryear. Uh, perhaps that does kind of hurt them enough. I, I think both those guys will get into the Hall Either of way, Fame. I would be, I would, let me just say the fun. He would not by far be the worst Hall of Famer. He wouldn't even be the worst Hall of Famer I've seen inducted personal, in person if Joe Maurer goes to the Hall of Fame. Hey, quick <laughs> question, guys. Are there team effects? Setting aside the Yankees, for example, are there team effects? Do people look around and say, you know, we don't have enough twins in the Hall of Fame, maybe and give Maurer a bump? Is that a thing? Or oh, not? it's not a thing. At least not not I know. If anything, it might be the opposite, right, Adi, because of the familiarity of the writers. So yeah. there could be a negative effect by just region of the country. Yeah, and I've that. sort of seen, I, I think when you're actually like, so somebody like Jorge Posada, I don't think his numbers really mean Hall of Fame, but I feel he never even sniffed a Hall of Fame discussion, in part because he was on a team with so many amazing players. So I think sometimes if you're like kind of, you know, maybe, you, you know, like a Jorge Posada with that same stat line on, you know, where he was one of the standout people carrying his team might have been a different uh, narrative, at least in the media's minds. That's almost a most valuable player argument. 
I mean, yeah, should be that kind of a minor? Is that like a, thir- a tertiary? And, and I mean, g- g- guess what writers think about with the Hall of Fame MVP? You know, how many MVPs is person? And just one, mean, la- one last plug for a player. I see no reason why Billy Wagner shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. He was the best closer in baseball or one of the top closers for a while. I mean, he's on the ballot. I don't think he should get in now, but he should get in eventually, according to me. I'm just going to I'm just going to laugh at your one last thing, because this ballot's going to be open for a while. I'm pretty sure we're going to be coming back to one it. last thing for today. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, that's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the second half of this week's show. As you guys know, the second half has become our guest segment, most weeks anyway. And we are delighted this week to welcome onto the show a new guest. Sometimes we get new, sometimes we get repeat, and this week is a new for the first time. Bud Davis is joining us. Bud is, for our purposes, a college football analyst. He's a casual but sophisticated casual college football analyst, and he's involved with a lot of the dialogue among the cognoscenti about what makes college football work, what makes teams good, how things are changing in the world in the era of NIL and the transfer portal to all of these conversations, Bud's bringing interesting data and good analysis. So we thought, heck, let's bring him on the show and talk to him. Bud, good afternoon to you. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's, uh, it's good to be here. So Bud's day job is geologist, geophysicist. He was, it sounds, um, christened a gator back in the day, went to UF for his geology degree. But, you know, as you do when you get wiser and mature, he migrated to the University of Texas for his PhD in geophysics. And now he's back in Florida country, Orlando area, doing geophysicist things. But most recently, you're doing all kinds of work, lots of interesting things. But most recently, you've talked about diving back into your recruiting data. And we, we, we're always interested in these data because it's a, they're, they pose interesting empirical challenges. They're important to the industry. But this time of year, they connect to what we're seeing on the field. As the field narrows down, there's always this conversation these days about, you know, stars matter. So the R.A. Wasserman stars matter, the Bud Elliott blue chip ratio, the, the, the unbelievable talent that the Georgias, Alabamas, and Ohio States have stockpiled over time. And does it just mean we're wasting our time? Yeah, we can get all enamored if we want to by Washington or cute little Florida state, but it's just a matter of time until Georgia kind of warms up and crushes everybody, or maybe Ohio state this year, whatever, where we'll dig into the data, but broadly, where do you come down on that, on that dialogue? Are you, are you in the, how deterministic are the stars and how deterministic is this blue chip ratio? Just to remind everyone, blue chip ratio, the percent of your roster, or at least the percent of your recruiting classes that are either four or five star versus lower stars. And Bud Elliott observed a few years ago that to win a national championship, you had to be at 50% or higher. And since then, more teams are, but also since then, the best teams have drifted even further north. And now the Alabamas and Georgias of the world have blue chip ratios of like 80 or 90%. At any rate, Bud, welcome to the conversation. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you know about this question. Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting one. Um, you know, I think it comes back to, you know, a few people have observed this. You can win a title two ways. You can be extremely talented. That's your Georgia's, Alabama's, or Ohio State. Or you can have, you know, a Heisman Trophy caliber quarterback. And that's how, you know, we see Clemson, um, who's kind of on that second tier of talent. They've been able to win championships. And, um, you know, 2019 LSU, there's, I mean, obviously they had a ton of NFL guys on there, but they were not you know, at that most elite level of talent. So those are really the two paths that we see. Um, I don't think there's any level of talent that guarantees you a national title. Um, So it always kind of leaves the door open. There's still some variance, but there's no perfect formula. There's no magic eight ball that can totally predict things, but I think we can kind of narrow it down by this point of the year. Well, we're, we're probably probabilists. As Adi likes to say, I didn't know that title existed, Bud, before I met Adi, but Adi's a probabilist. Adi, how, what, chime in on this conversation. How would you like us to be thinking about it? Uh, well, 
probably probabilistically um it's it's really interesting that you talk about the 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 ratio as if there's four and five are sort of like all equivalent um and i think that's the the real that's a they're not top of the five is very different from lower than the five and top of the four is very different from lower the four because that that exponential curve there at the top is really vast. And so, and of course, Adi, real quickly, mistakes. let's make, let's make precise how big these categories are. Blue, blue, the five stars are, it's a really small category and it moves around each year, but it's, I think of it as the top 30 or so. Sometimes it's top 20, yeah, 25, 30, yeah. really mm-hmm. small. Then the, the four forest. stars are much fatter category. It's a hundred plus guys. Yeah. You're observing that the top of the four stars are much more like the five stars than are the bottom of the four stars, like the top of the four stars. Yeah. There's a huge amount of variance within the category, and the and uh, and and then of course there's variance within our estimation, right, of the categories. Right? So you you take that together, and um, the thing about about football recruiting, even in high school, I mean, the absolute top of the top, they're 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 so amazingly talented and difference making um, that when a, t- a the team like I guess a school like Georgia or Alabama can have so many, they have so many shots. It's just hard. It's you wonder like why they're. I mean, it's true. They're they're every year at the top, and it's. I I almost wonder why there 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 could be anyone else other than four or five teams competing. Right. Well, let's go to Bud on that, and let's ground it. But we want to talk about what you're observing over you know decades, really, and the data you've crunched. But let's ground it in this year's conversation. Especially We're down the game to, I'm about to see on Saturday, Michigan, Ohio State. Eric's letting us know. He's reminding us from last week that he's going. To Michigan, Ohio State, which is is indeed impressive, Eric, and we are jealous. It's true. Biggest game of the year, and we've known that from the beginning. So a lot of talent on that field. I think most metrics would say that Ohio State has more talent, but the Michigan's really outperformed so far. But of the eight or so teams that are still in the running for the playoffs and ultimately the national championship, how do they stack out by these talent scores? And some this may be your number, and we're happy to use your numbers, or we can use the, whoever's running the best roster and talent numbers these days, 24-7. In fact, please tell us, where can people dig into these data if they want to look at it themselves? But break down the field for us of the final eight or so teams that we have left. Yeah, so shout out to collegefootballdata.com. They do a really great job of making a lot of this data readily accessible. They maintain an API. It's free. Um, really responsive. They do a great job over there. So those guys are awesome. Uh, I tend to go with 24-7's data. They've been around a while. You can get a little bit more apples to apples, but they've changed their formula up. There's been new recruiting services. In general, I think you can look at the 24-7 team talent composite. They've maintained that since 2015, um, and it's pretty stable year to year. And for me, I think one of the things I look at are, are who are the teams over this 950 team talent composite number. Those are usually the elite ones. They kind of tend to separate and, and get more from, from a talent advantage than, than other teams. Um, and then the three that stick out this year in terms of the team talent advantage are the ones we've mentioned. Um, it's Alabama, it's Georgia, and then it's Ohio State. They're in that upper tier. Okay. One clarification. It's, this was similar to do when teams recruited all their players out of high school. But these days, a lot comes in off the transfer portal. Of course, this is a moving target. More come in each year off the transfer portal. But this year, prominently, at least Florida State, is heavily influenced by their transfer portal acquisitions. Are, are, the, are collegefootball.com or 24-7, are they including some kind of rating? Or does a guy arrive with his high school rating? Does it just get updated in a simple way like that? They re-rate the transfers now. Um I don't know. I don't have a good handle on how accurate those are, Mm -hmm. um, how useful they are. And I think how to value players in the portal is one of the million dollar questions in college football right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, this is just to remind everyone, it's not a solved problem, right? These things, technology is changing, the world's changing. And so we've got continued changing analytics challenges, Eric. Yes. But I wanted to ask you um, a couple questions, but they're all the same question, really. Um, Are these things position weighted? And then the second thing is, does it take into account other redundancies or interactions? Eric, Short answer, what do you mean by redundancies and interactions? Well, so for example, if a team has two really great quarterbacks, you can only play one. 
if a team has a great number one receiver and a number two receiver, that's a lot better than having just a number one receiver. If a team has two guys that can both kick the ball really well or center. So that's what I mean by are are there when they're computing the, if you'd like, the talent of the whole, are they using some sort of portfolio optimization or portfolio way to think about the total talent? Or is it purely just a summation? A little bit. Um, there's not a specific positional key that says this guy's QB two. He is not as valuable as QB one in terms of the team talent Um, baked into how high school recruits are rated. They tend to overweight some positions. You'll see a higher representation of quarterbacks in the upper echelon of of recruits versus um, the number that a single team needs. And you'll see a lower proportion of offensive linemen in that, you know, upper tier versus what you need to maintain a roster. So that's kind of where the positional stuff gets in. So a lower rated O-line might provide you more relative value than a similarly rated wide receiver or quarterback. Um, But it's not necessarily baked into any sort of formula. They do use in the class score and the team talent uh, a weighted formula where it weights your highest rated player um, more than your lowest rated player. So it's a way for them to get at the most elite talent. Um, but it is, you know, blind to positions, um, and blind yeah, to start, starting 22 or whatever. Eric, one yeah, thing about it, the redundancy is you, you might, there's another R word with a more positive connotation. You might call it robustness. These guys are getting knocked out all the time. And the teams who have a better second string QB or third wide receiver or backup tight end or whatever are going to be more robust to those injuries. It so may not another, should receive full weight, but it, it's going to matter It's for most teams at some point. Or another way to think about it is if you think about the variability of the talent a team could put on the field, a team with a great second string will have much lower variance, which should play a big role. And as a matter of fact, we've, I think I've heard Adi talk about this all the time. These great teams, you know, maybe Michigan, I'll make it up, has 10 players that are just as good as Ohio State, but Ohio State has 60 of them and Michigan has 35 of them. So what happens when someone gets injured or, you know, natural attrition? When they meet in week 12 of the season and half the roster is dinged up already. Shane? I guess I I know you're more uh, used to kind of using recruiting as sort of, you know, a predictor of, 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 of team success. I'm kind of interested in sort of what predicts recruiting success. Is it I mean, obviously, there's a lot of factors that go into it, and the transfer portal complicates even, you know, how we think about this. But how much of it is kind of just regional sort of dominance, you know, that that you're a dominant university in a region that's very into football versus, you know, kind of the the immediate sort of success or the recent success of the actual team or the recent success of the position you're trying to recruit for? So, yeah, I guess basically – Large, how much is regional versus kind of previous success in your opinion? Yeah, and I think that that's kind of a cool question I want to come back to. I did this a few years ago and, and have just started, you know, kind of revisiting it. We got a few more years of data. Um, so on average, if you just take your, the average class a program gets, you can predict pretty well about 70% of it with a really super simple linear model. Um, and you just look at on average, how many blue chip top 300 recruits are in the area and how much do people spend towards your athletic department? And you can get about 70% of recruiting just predicted from there. About 30% of it is location. So that's why, you know, Georgia, Alabama, Clemson, um, A&M, Texas, Miami, they're in these great recruiting areas. Um, they're the premier brands in super talented areas. And then probably 60% is just who you are. It's why Georgia recruits better than Georgia tech. Um, it's, you know, why Texas A&M recruits better than Baylor, Texas better than Baylor. Um, there's definitely feedbacks there. So it's tough to untangle. Are these teams highly prestigious because they recruit well? Do people want to go to these prestigious programs uh, do good recruits want to go to the prestigious programs? How do they feed back? And it, it's tough to untangle. And I think generally you can just think like, why did you choose to go 
to the college you went to over the one you didn't go to. And, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that decision, you know, for each person. So there's going to be a lot of variance and there's not going to be a magic formula. So if you look at it big picture, you can probably get about 70% of it. What I really am interested in is the year to year variability. You know, we'll see, you know, 20 to 30 point standard deviations by program. And, and why is that? Um, and I think I have a few theories, but it's something I want to come back to and revisit. How precise can we actually predict these year to year, uh, not just on average? Well, both questions, both sides of that are interesting. Both the, the big chunk of the variability that can be explained with simple models and the remaining bits that need more nuance. I think that I think it's a helpful reminder to football fans how much is determined, really kind of almost determined geographically. It, it was eye-opening to me and has been a lens that I've looked through for years now since I think Bud Elliott was the first observation. Bud Elliott's was the first observation I saw who said, look, the biggest factor by far is just who's closest. And that means that certain teams just have advantages, like the SEC teams, where the talent is richest in the in the South, just have a built-in advantage. And a question that we've been entertaining is, okay, fine, but over time, does that change as technology makes players more observable at greater distances, as technology, as even TV uh, rights go broad and now you can watch any player. I mean, the fans, the mom and dad can watch a player from any part of the country in any part of the country. Does that change the importance of geography? So one, a good reminder, geography matters. But Bud, do you have any do you have any perspective on whether that the importance of geography is changing over time or has changed over time? Yeah. I mean, you I, I think it's always gonna be tough because you know, I I tend to think we've got good recruiting data from two thousand eight. So we've got fifteen, you know, oh, really, only since two thousand eight, really. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I think we've got fifteen good classes. Um that we can look at. So we're going to be a really small sample size, but you can look at programs like Oregon. Oregon's not in a super talent rich place, but they've got a pretty premier brand, mm-hmm. um, pretty recognizable on the field. And, you know, they're one of those programs that steadily you see the recruiting has increased over time as that brand has gotten more recognizable, um, especially like post Mariota, like got mm-hmm. so much prominence. So you think about things like that, um, I do think we'll, we're probably seeing recruiting maybe going a little more national. Um, you know, I've looked into this, like what's the most predictive distance for recruits. And, and you know, I, I did some work for Florida. This is how I got started on this, is looking at the footprint. What's our program footprint? Um, yeah. And, you know, for the most part, it's like 80% are within the distance to Atlanta. But that 20% is from outside that. And I think we're seeing that, you know, grow each year. I think Mm -hmm. you're seeing Georgia recruit really nationally. These most elite programs are recruiting nationally. Your Alabama's, your Ohio State's. Um, I think the question is, how does a program that's kind of on the fringes do that? How would a Tennessee do that? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, how would, you know, an Oklahoma, how does Michigan do that when Ohio State's in their footprint? Um, Recruiting zero sum. And so that makes it really hard. You know, if you miss on, if a recruit chooses to go to somebody else, it doesn't just benefit them. It hurts you. Um, If a recruit from Atlanta chooses Georgia, it hurts Alabama, it hurts Tennessee, it hurts Clemson. So I think trying to measure those things are really difficult. Mm -hmm. Has anybody looked at the, I'll call it within recruiting period, sequential nature of recruiting. So for example, you know, uh, University of Florida gets a top chip recruit. Now, all of a sudden, the second recruit says, well, wait a second. I didn't know. Maybe now maybe Florida's going to be better than I thought it was going to be. Or maybe, you know, there's plenty of nil money to go around. Or maybe the TV rights are going to go up. Or maybe I'm better prepared for the NFL now. So um, have people looked at within season sequential? Not that I've seen. Not in a really statistically robust way. I've tried to look at the recruiting calendar before and say, hey, you need to be at this point, um, and and that's the sign of a good class. But basically, then they did early signing period, the portal periods, NIL, and we're on a completely different calendar now. 
Um, and so I think it makes it really tough. I like the idea of starting, you know, who your first recruit is, what's the quality there and seeing how predictive that is. Um, yeah. But to, to, how do you think about some of these observations you make statistically that seem really striking? They are striking, but they're a little bit tough to interpret. So for example, sometimes people talk about the top 100 players, which is kind of an in-between uh, fours and fives, top 100 players. How many people do you have on your roster right now who are top 100s? And it and looks like it's very well connected to the probability of your, your winning a national championship sometime in the, in the near future. Do you think the number of top 100 players on a team, how much of that effect is the direct effect of having those better athletes on the field versus a proxy for other good things that are going on in the program? You know, they came because your coach is good or because you've had a good run the last couple of years, or as Eric said, because you landed this other guy who I played ball with or I know where I want to play with. So in whenever we make these standalone observations, like number of top 100 athletes on the roster, because we're not controlling for other things, we tend, I think, to overinterpret what it means. And, oh, man, we got to get here's the here's the reason it matters. It would it would lead you to think, oh, if we get one more top 100 guy, it's going to really push us over the edge. Well, if the effect is the direct effect, yes. But if it's really just a proxy for other stuff, then manipulating it directly won't have as direct an effect. So how do you think about this? Because I'm talking about one example, but really it goes for almost any time we observe these things, even the blue chip ratio. It's a little broader, and so presumably the direct effect is broader. But in general, it's hard to control for all these things at the same time. So how do you think about that? Yeah, I think the only way I've kind of gotten at that, and we kind of got to walk through this a little bit, is to look at what I call draft value over expected and break it down by coach. And so what what I did was I did this – uh, almost three years ago now. So it's going to need some updating. Uh, it's in progress, but I took the recruits ranking. So not the rating, not a class score, just the ranking. Cause that was always consistent. You know, we have 3000 recruits a year. And then I looked at not what rate they went, got drafted by NLT NFL team, but how much draft capital NFL teams spent on them. So drafting someone, First says that this person is very good. And I think this is a nice proxy because it makes it easy for us to say how valuable a recruit is because NFL offices are now valuing them. And we can tie it to, I tied it to the stats by Lopez uh, draft curve, the Mike Lopez um, NFL draft value curve. So by the way, but this whole methodology is remarkable because of how similar it is to something that Adi spun up. Just, I think out of the thin, out of thin air. I'm not sure Ali had, Ali had watched a college football game when he decided to do it this way. It's it's a great way. Brilliant. I mean, when, when somebody asks you what's the best way to evaluate the talent of a college football player, there are 32 NFL teams who are doing that every year. Let right. lean on right. them, lean on their expertise. Right. Uh, let them now, do the, that. The, the criticism is: look, we're not recruiting this guy to play for the Buccaneers five years from now. We want to know what he's going to do next year for us. But and, I hear you. Yeah. And so that's a hard part, but you can take, you can generate these, basically it makes an exponential curve where all of the draft value is in the top players. Um, I think by the time you get to recruit 260, there is as much value above 260 as there is below it. Um, So like the bottom, you know, 3000 something recruits together are worth as much as the top 265. Something like that. That's a great statistic, by the way. Yeah, so I, I did a but I did a two stage model. So what I did for every for every recruit based only on their high school information, I predicted um, the probability of getting drafted, and then the conditional probability, really the conditional distribution on their draft order, given that they would be drafted, and uh, and so and then you can divide you can you can rank teams kind of both ways. You can rank them by the fraction of their teams that are expected to have to be drafted at all. And and the the probability of drafting curve is not as steep because it dro- it goes down pretty much less. Uh, I mean, what's interesting is right at the very very top, the number one recruit has something like a 60 percent chance of being drafted, and the reason for that is that hey, they don't pan out and they get injured, and uh, they're, just, they're just even the absolute best player doesn't show up. Um, and so my two stage model was was used not to um, 
I, I was I was doing something completely different. That's a tangent to even talking about now. But one thing that I noticed was that I had a, I, uh, I I looked for a signal and draft um, probability that you could attribute to a to a program. And because of multiplicity, meaning there's so many teams, I couldn't find any. Um, so there did look like some teams' programs were sticking out, but no more than you'd expect to see by chance variation. <laughs> and it was sort of surprising. Well, Adi, one, one weakness of that analysis is it might be more specific than program. It could be, for example, coaching staff. Most people think yeah. of it as coaching staff related. And But I think Bud might have been going this direction because Bud started this whole conversation by saying, Something like draft value over expected. So that sounds like a development stat of some kind. Yeah. So then basically once you have this curve, you can estimate, okay, this is the number one ranked recruit. How much draft value should they generate? Mm-hmm. And then you can look at coaches or programs and actually compare it to how much draft value did get spent on spent on them. So and because I, I did basically just that. And yeah. there's a lot of variance, right? But I couldn't do after kind of dealing for the fact that I have so many programs, I couldn't find any of that variance sticking out above like a baseline rate of, of, um, of uh, background rate of noise. Did you find anything different or you actually found programs that stuck out? I mean, I did, I did it by program, not by coaching staff. So I did it both ways. So I did it program first. I actually, I did draft class first and then I did program and coaches and I did coaches who recruited them and coaches when they got drafted. So there's a lot of ways you could potentially dice this up. I think it's probably going to be an even harder exercise to do this now with the portal, but I don't think it's surprising to look at by program, the draft value over expected it's Ohio state, Alabama, Clemson. This is when I did this three years ago. So those are three programs that have been extremely stable with their success. Mm -hmm. And then the programs at the bottom are USC, Tennessee, and Texas. These are programs that have recruited well, but haven't seen a lot of on-field success. Mm-hmm. So does that mean the recruits were busts and these programs were kind of unlucky and got recruits that didn't develop or were the coaches bad developers? Um, a lot of these programs churned coaches in that time frame, And I think that's what I saw when I went on a per program basis is that coaching churn is one of the best ways to decrease your draft value over expected. It's also just in a row, one of the best ways to decrease your draft value once they get to the NFL too. Yeah. Right. That, yeah, exactly. Cause they need continued development. Eric. I was going to uh, ask you, but do you tend to see greater deviations at different parts of the curve? And what I mean by that is related to what Adi's earlier comment was, if you're number one, like, you know, even I couldn't basically screw you up as a coach, but if you're number 100, then it really needs good coaching. So in some sense, you could argue that the value of coaching is to get the 50th ranked player to play well. The top players are going to play well no matter what. Is there any evidence to that? Or is that just, you know, did I just make that up? Well, I just made it up. Is there any evidence for that? (laughs) I don't have a great answer than that. I, I will say, like, if you look at on a per player basis, you know, which ones, if you take this draft value over expected and try and look at it that way, you're going to see some trends and it's going to be low ranked QBs. If you can get great value out of those, guess what? They're going to get drafted early. You're going to get a ton of value. And then what we saw on the negative side, the people who didn't pan out who are highly rated, they're almost all trench players. They're either offensive tackles, defensive ends that, you know, were giants, early developers in high school and then got really highly rated. And a lot of them, you know, injuries, didn't play pan out played good not great um yeah or or as in one of your as one of your analysis shows maybe they were held back in high school so they'd already developed they had all these advantages because they were older in high school and they then didn't have the developmental upside they got misunderstood at that early age but yeah, we're gonna have that, to let you we're gonna have to let you go but i want to i want to end with a question make lots more to talk with you about you've got lots to say about the transfer portal about nil increasingly um, and I mean, you're a geophysicist. Geo is an important wor- word here in the recruiting world. We just talked about above and below expectations um, for developing players. What about recruiting above and below expectations for your geographic location? I mean, some of these guys are so privileged. If we, we'd, we'd better understand how good a recruiter someone is at, say, A&M, 
if we understood how privileged they are to be in that part of the country. So that's it'd be an interesting way to get to get a get to it would probably unearth better some recruiters that are underappreciated. And it might take down some guys that are thought of as great recruiters just because of the position they're in. Tried it. I tried this a long time ago. I tried to look at recruiting improvement by coach. And I, what I found was it was a non-transferable skill. If somebody was able to achieve recruiting improvement at one program, it was not predictive of if they could achieve recruiting improvement at another one. Um, and I think that's difficult to kind of wrap my head around. I think a lot more of recruiting has to do with what other programs are doing than what we tend to think. Like Tennessee's recruiting ceiling is capped by Clemson, Alabama, and Georgia being high achieving, super stable programs. They don't have a hope to break into that next year until Nick Saban retires, until (laughs) Dabo Sweeney messes up or something. This is, this is exactly, this is why I, I love my Aggie friends. I love them. But I have to pull against them because they are our chiefest recruit, our chief recruiting rival. And what's good for them is bad for Texas. And it's just the, it's just the nature of the beast. But I also think it, it means the models for recruiting, for our understanding recruiting, for our crediting the right recruiters and not over crediting the wrong recruiters is really complicated because now we have to have this competitive thing, this rivalry thing going on. It's an interesting model. We have to come back to it. But thanks for coming out and talking to us for the first time. Really enjoyed it. Enjoy your work. Guys, y'all want to listen and read Bud. You can find him on Twitter at jbuddavis, at jbuddavis, doing great stuff with college football data. Bud, thanks again, man. Good to meet you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. All right. We'll let you go then. That has been a full hour of Wharton Moneyball, a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM with the whole crew. Audie Weiner's here from points way north. Shane Jensen from points even further east. Eric Bradlow from very familiar points, very central to Wharton. And Cade from points southwest. Many thanks for the crew here. For Maddie Dats, the boss man. Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man, keeps us on the straight and narrow. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.